of the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm James Cohn here. We are recording in 7th Ward, New Orleans, recovering from New Orleans Film Fest for me and a giant move for James. Yeah. Man, I haven't been able to, like, watch anything the past week. Yeah, just been so busy. Like, It's been a month since we talked. Dude, it's been a busy month. Shit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Definitely been missing, like, watching films. Yeah. I've only been able to watch... The stuff we've been covering, so... I've watched too much stuff is kind of my problem. Because like, of the Film Fest and everything? Yeah, I think at Film Fest I saw... It must have been 15 movies over nine days, uh, if not 16. Somewhere in that range. And then also, you know, stuff for the podcast, stuff for the website. So you're probably watching like three or four movies a day? Something like that, yeah. I'm feeling pretty fried, honestly. You're like a professional movie reviewer. Yeah, except without the money. Without um. the money, which... <laughs> The enthusiasm is there. Yeah. So I don't even want to get into the Film Fest stuff just because I'm probably going to do a longer conversation with CC about everything we saw, mm-hmm. um, kind of like we did last year. What was, like, if you could just pick one movie that blew you away from the fest? Uh, Sean Baker's The Florida Project, the guy who did Tangerine. It's his new movie. And instead of it being shot on iPhones like Tangerine is, it's shot on this, like, beautiful 35 millimeter film. And it's set at these like extended stay motels outside of Disney World. Okay, yeah, I saw I saw a trailer for that. It's so good. Um, it's it's non professional actors for the most part, except for like Willem Dafoe plays the manager of the motel, and he's basically like being subverted and kind of made fun of by these little kids who basically are all children of single mothers who live in the motel. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of them have like sex worker parents, and they're kind of like unguarded and just kind of like walk around freely and do whatever they want but it's not like a poverty porn version of that story it's like almost celebratory of how able these kids are to like laugh in the face of authority and like life obstacles and just sort of like run wild it i've been describing it as like one of the most punk movies i've seen all year just that complete subversion of authority and like not taking life seriously uh it's got kind of like a court jester like little rascals vibe to it it's so fun, and it's so dangerously fun. That does seem similar to Tangerine yeah. in a lot of ways. I'm kind of interested to see what he can do with, like you said, like an actual like 35 millimeter camera. I will say, I think I enjoy it slightly more than Tangerine, which mm-hmm. is crazy because I was really high on that movie. Just because I feel like in Tangerine, you got the perspective more spread around. Like you were on the outside looking in at the characters a few times. But with the Florida Project, it's always from the kid's point of view. Any sort of like explanatory structure, like adults looking in on them is sort of like excised. Mm -hmm. So it's purely just like following these children around in these like sort of anecdotal vignettes. 
Uh, this old lady behind me at the theater, like about 40 minutes in, whispered like, does this movie have a plot? <laughs> and like, and kind of incredulously, and it made me like, like it 10 times more, just kind of out of spite. I was like, no, it doesn't. And it's great. Well, and also, I love that it's set right near Disney World. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of subverting the whole idea of like this fantasy land for children. That's not, that sounds really good. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, it hasn't actually hit theaters here yet, but I'm thinking probably the next two weeks or so it will. Um, it's it's kind of doing that slow release over the nation, you know, uh, playing in like New York and stuff and making its way down here. So that was fantastic. Outside the fest and outside stuff for the website, I haven't really seen much except last night we watched McGee's new movie. He made like the Charlie's Angels films in the 90s. And Did he do Spice World too? Was nah, that him? I don't think so. No. It's the same vibe though. Does he, he does like music videos mm-hmm. and stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. His new movie, though, is a horror comedy. It's like this little kid has the hots for his babysitter, and he stays up late after he goes to bed to spy on what she does, because his neighbor is kind of like egging him a little bit, like, hey, she probably has a bunch of sex after you go to bed. Like, you should see what what she does once you're asleep. (laughs) And it turns out that instead of having a boyfriend over to sleep with him, she has a satanic ritual with five different people. It is a bubblegum pop horror film where it's like super gory and violent, but nothing is taken seriously at all. All the backgrounds and stuff kind of feel like that Cat in the Hat adaptation with Mike Myers, like kind of eye-bleedingly colorful with like bright wallpaper. And it just feels like such a weird intrusion in this like kind of Leave it to Beaver dollhouse that things would just get bloody and violent all of a sudden. I'm not a huge fan of the Mick G style, this like over-stylized hyperactive like you said he did music videos uh for a living for a while i it's got that same sugar rush quality to it but i guess just because it happened to be a horror comedy i was more into this like it's really fun kind of reminds me the way you're describing kind of reminds me like a spring breakers sort of situation like yeah it's not as satirical or smart as spring breakers is like i think spring breakers has kind of like a self-awareness that this movie doesn't. This one relies on stereotypes for, like, characters in a way that's kind of gross, where I feel like Spring Breakers is more directly dealing with that kind of disparity. But it's definitely got that same, like, sinister bubblegum teens made into a menace as Spring Breakers does. It's really fun. It's really dumb. It's a little 85-minute movie on Netflix. Like, it doesn't take much out of you to watch it. Uh, but if you're looking Definitely. at the reviews for it, people hate it. And I found it really fun. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't even know what else to say about it. It's like cotton candy version of, like, a horror movie. There's, like, nothing really to it. I'm trying to watch a lot of horror movies this month, so I'll have to throw that one on the list. Yeah. And speaking of which, this is one of our horror episodes we were trying to get through for October. We're coming in a little late, but we got a lot of good spooky content for the day. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to be returning to sort of like the basics of, of horror film here. We're going to do like a old style ritual movie and kind of a uh, silent film classic that's been reinterpreted a few times. Yeah, and I actually it had been a while since I've seen some of these movies too, so it was kind of good to revisit them. Most of these are first time watches for me, actually. So it'll be good. Yeah, we're doing sort of a back to the basics Halloween episode today. And all that's coming up to you right right now. now. This circle. This is the chamber of effect. Element of wood. Where we seal our vessel from the world. Make it safe against attack. This one. The chamber of the song. We push off into the void on our journey. Element of fire. The blackness. 
boundless, where we sink into the abyss. The tangible, earth, metal, water, a cycle. Now this middle circle, this is nameless. This is where your angel will appear. You will ask your favour and I will ask mine. When will my angel appear? Well, we'll be invoking the angel at every circle. But each time we move on, it'll grow more powerful. This world will be merged with other worlds. Others will hear. When will the angel appear? It can appear at any time from the first invocation. Most likely, fourth or fifth circle. And now it's time for our regular Movie of the Minute segment. This is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. And this time, James made me watch an indie horror film called A Dark Song. What is that? So I found out about this movie from my old roommate who has a buddy that works in the film industry. And he's recommended stuff in the past that like I'd never heard of. He always has good stuff. And he was saying that this movie was one of his favorite horror movies in recent memory. So I was like, all right, got to check that out. And um, honestly, it blew me away. Basically, pretty simple story, just about a woman who has lost her son. And she hires this witch doctor, uh... He's into like the occult and Satanism and basically hires him to help her get in touch with her lost son. And so they lock themselves in this abandoned mansion and he kind of is very militant with his like rituals. And and she basically signs up to do anything that this guy wants her to do in the hopes of you know getting in touch with an angel or a demon or something that can tell her what happened to her son. And it kind of becomes this claustrophobic film where the two of them are just putting themselves through these really intense rituals and you kind of get the sense that he's sort of a con man that he could be lying to her to string her along but as the movie kind of progresses you kind of see that there's a little more to these rituals and we'll talk about where it ends up but that's kind of the setup what did you think of the film what I really appreciated about A Dark Song is the way that it's like method and commitment to the specifics of this like, it's not satanic ritual, it's like Kabbalist, I think. Yeah. The way it's committed to this like occult method and like following the rules and the rituals and like going through this like very meticulous, mundane almost, repetitive process that's supposed to like get you to this like bigger goal. Mm-hmm. Like there's something really satisfying about watching them do something competently and by the books. And they're drawing all these different like geometric circles in the different rooms and each yeah. circle represents some other part of the ritual and there's kind of this like multicultural aspect to it. Like some Chinese lore is brought in, some satanic aspects. Yeah, it was interesting they like it seems like it was actually well researched. Mm-hmm. Like whoever wrote this movie definitely read about the occult and what the practices actually are to summon these demons. And yeah, that's one thing I really liked about it. It seemed like accurate. Like if someone wanted to do this, this is probably how they would go about it. And there's something to the fact that these are two people, so it's a tiny crew in this house, and they're trying to summon something much bigger than them through this like sort of studied methodology of the ritual. Mm-hmm. And I found like an interesting parallel there and the idea of this movie, which is a small crew trying to make this huge, like sea change horror film out of like basically no money. There's like 
barely any characters in the movie. The house is most of it. They kind of blow some money on some CGI where it counts. Right. But for the most part, it's this like same thing as the the actual ritual that they're depicting. It's this sort of like by the books, like almost like alchemy, making like something much bigger than the parts and the pieces that their limited means are afforded to them. And I found that just that really satisfying parallel between like the filmmaking craft and the actual subject was really harmonious. And I think your overall opinion of the film will come down to if you think that they successfully did that. Right. If they created something much bigger than the budget kind of allowed. To me, I think they knocked it out of the park. Especially like you're saying, with the money they had in the CGI, they used it at exactly the right moment for that big wow factor, which, you know, does come eventually. Yeah, it wouldn't be much of a movie if they did this ritual for an hour and then there was no payoff. Like, it kind of needs to end with the ritual unlocking some kind of, like, supernatural event. The film towards the middle, I don't know if you thought this, but it definitely kind of gets into torture porn sort of territory where they're really pushing each other. And especially the female character, she's really like pushed to the brink, both physically and mentally. Yeah, I think that kind of works a little bit because one of the more interesting aspects outside just watching the mechanics of this ritual come together for me was the economic disparity between the woman who's basically an employer paying this like a cultist to exercise this, this, uh, I keep calling it a ritual. There's really no other word for it. Mm -hmm. Um, she is this like kind of posh used to be upper class person who's spending all of her money to make this happen. And the man that she's employing automatically because of the money is at this sort of like lower rung, like service position. And he kind of takes that out on her. Um, right. He's got a less refined, kind of almost like Ali G type character about him. He like wears bucket hats and things. And then it's kind of hard at first to take him seriously when he puts on these like ceremonial robes when he usually dresses like a white rapper. And yeah. he kind of takes it out on her. He acts like a drill sergeant and is like, I'm in the position of power here. I know how this works and you don't. Yeah, it's like a militant mysticism kind of. I thought that was like one of the most interesting dynamics in the film, especially early on. You're like, I can't take this guy seriously. There's no way this dude actually knows how to get in touch with the supernatural. He's like printing out like computer sheets with like information on it. And it's like anybody could Google this. It's not that important in that case. You know, if it's it's accessible to everyone, it's not that significant. At the beginning of the movie, I thought that's where it was going. was like, oh, he's just stringing her along. He has his own things he's dealing with and he's going to try to take it out on her there's definitely like a power dynamic where she holds the economic power over him but he holds this like you know the thing she ultimately wants to get in touch with her son he has that power over her and can pretty much force her to do anything he wants and she kind of goes along with it because you realize she wants to get in touch with her son so bad that she's willing to do anything and yeah, and like you're saying, that does go to like almost like a torture relationship towards the the third act, but in a way that kind of I did find disappointing, just because like for a movie where your imagination of like what they could possibly be unlocking is like infinite, for the movie to like resort to a moment of like him taking advantage of her sexually, it's not a rape scene in like a physical way, but it is like a sexual assault. Mm-hmm. And it just feels like very unimaginative for them to take that dynamic there. Like, I, I'm just getting tired of seeing that play out on screen. Yeah, I felt the same way. It's I like, kinda why do we have to bring that into this? I kind of could have done without it. I knew it was 
going there though because he even said in the beginning like abstaining from sex like part of it so he kind of knew it was going to go there but yeah i could have done without it yeah and I, I do like the idea of, like, purifying the body, though. Like, they abstain from sex and alcohol, alcohol. and drugs. And um, I think they even stop eating a couple days before they're... And it's supposed to be this six to eight month long process where they're trapped in this house. Which is so insane to think yeah. about just these two people, like, doing this for that long a period of time. And the thing that's locking them in the house is this, like, ring of salt that goes around. And you can't cross the line or bad things will happen and they'll be trapped there forever unless they, like, finish the ritual through. There's, like, all these different things that they're playing with that are much bigger than themselves uh and yeah that that sexual assault moment does kind of drag it down to this like kind of small moment like or for a movie playing with such big ideas right for it to become that like petty is kind of lame but it, it is like a, a very small fraction of a much larger picture i think well so i guess um we do have to talk about the ending yeah I don't, I don't know how many how much specifics you want to give out just because if you want someone to watch this right uh, yeah, that's tough. I really don't... I don't want to spoil it, Let me actually. frame it this way, though. Yeah. I think that the move's so satisfying in the way it builds up to this big moment, and it puts so much emphasis on delivering this, like, mind-blowing event that's yeah. going to come in the last couple minutes, and it's supposed to be this all-out, destroying reality, meeting with angels and demons moment, that there's no way it could possibly deliver on what it promises. And once you get there, it is satisfying, but you're still left with the idea that the anticipation was more of the adventure than the payoff of what you were leading up to. And what I'll say, because I I think I enjoyed it more than you, is yeah. that I thought that that payoff kind of was the perfect thing. Like, it just gave me this overwhelming, like, emotional satisfaction. And for her character, too, like, it just really connected on like a deep level where I thought the whole movie, like you're saying, it built to this moment. And then for me, I think because I loved that payoff, it was just like a complete picture for me. Yeah, I do like that they go for an emotional beat there. And it's more about her growing as a person than it is about like, look at all this crazy shit we're throwing at the screen. I was kind of getting scared that it would go into like a martyr's territory where there is no hope at the end... I was thinking of Baskin. Uh, do you know that movie? Um, it's like a Turkish horror film. And this movie kind of looks like it when it first breaks reality. There's like all these like kind of like torturous demons that sort of drag the characters around and like tear them apart mm-hmm. and do all this like weird sexual stuff. Uh, and I don't like that movie at all. But <laughs> I think this one plays with similar imagery in a way that's not as gross. And then builds towards a more euphoric emotional moment instead. I think euphoric is a good word for at least how I like felt for that ending. Here's my complaint, maybe. Maybe what I wanted was just more. It felt like so much time was spent on building to the moment that when you get there, it just feels so rushed. The movie starts to play with time loops and fractured reality where like a moment will repeat itself mm-hmm. or uh, a character will try to run away and just end up in the same place and I don't think it did enough with that idea uh, the, the thing they keep kind of saying when they're trying to exercise this ritual is they're trying to say like we're gonna push off into the void we're gonna unlatch this house from the rest of the universe and there's so few moments when you actually see reality break in that way that when it finally bro- came down to her being by herself on the other side of that void, it was just such a short period of time. You're talking about like maybe three to five minutes 
And I would have liked more playing with the rules of physics and the rules of time and sort of messing with my head cerebrally uh, than the movie could deliver, basically just because of a budget. Yeah, I I would actually agree with that. I think if you would drop some of the buildup, like you could have just dropped that sex scene and maybe shorten a few other things and then like it kind of was reminding me of triangle sort of at the end where she's stuck in this loop and Mm -hmm. obviously is like not in reality anymore that is the payoff kind of and i would like to have seen more of that too but if we're talking about the ultimate payoff at the very end that i don't have complaints about that i think it is good for the character for her to get to that moment but i see what you're saying with the build-up to that it did feel a little rushed but you know that's kind of a minor yeah, I, I, I appreciated the building of the tension so much that I still left the film positive. I wasn't like, oh man, this is such yeah, a yeah. waste of my time. It was more like, oh, I really enjoyed the build-up more than the payoff. That's not necessarily a problem because that's most of the movie. Like, right. Like you said earlier, like felt like well-researched and just like meticulous. And the different chalk drawings on the ground and the candles and everything, the way that slowly evolves and becomes more complex over the movie like i found that building feeling more satisfying mm-hmm. and maybe too much for its own good because you build up so much tension and anticipation right. that a movie this cheap is not going to be able to deliver on. fully pay off yeah um i think triangle is actually a pretty good reference point where i think that movie does a good job of messing with your head kind of pulling the rug from under you and that, that sinking, like, reality is slipping away feeling, I got more out of that movie. And this one plays at it a little bit. It, I just could have used so much more of that. But I think there's a good comparison, too, between Triangle and Dark Song in that it still has that emotional core mm-hmm. to it. Like, Triangle's really just about her trying to, like, get back in touch with her son. Right. Putting herself through this stuff. And that's, for me, what, like, really makes it great is it had that emotional payoff at the end, I really like this movie. Yeah. I liked it. And I, I kind of do want to see what other people think about the ending because what I've been reading online, it kind of has either people are like head over heels for it or some people are like, what? Like, that's what happens. Yeah. But I would like to hear other people's thoughts. On I'm kind time. of in the middle there. Like, I like the ending, but I'm not um, floored by it the way I was more engaged with what was leading up to it. Yeah. Um, so everybody should watch it and yeah. let us know what you think. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Did you become a vampire? I can't recall. Where were you born? Where were you born? I can't remember. <laughs> well, it's not funny anymore. Come on, come on, Count Dracula wouldn't say he couldn't remember. I read that book. Morno gave it to me. <laughs> well, now this is a golden opportunity. Speaking as a vampire. What do you make of the book's technical merits? It made me sad. Why sad? Because Dracula had no servants. I think you missed the point of the book, uh, Count Orlok. <laughs> Dracula hasn't had servants in 400 years, and then a man comes to his ancestral home, and he must convince him that he, that he is like the man. He has to feed him when he himself hasn't eaten food in centuries. 
All right, so currently there are two Nosferatu remakes supposedly in the works. One is going to be directed by Robert Eggers, who did The Witch as his debut feature. Very excited for that. Me too. Yeah. I didn't know that there was a second one in the works as well. Is there? Yeah. It's like a crowdfunded remake that's supposed to star Doug Jones, who basically plays the monsters in most Guillermo del Toro movies. The guy with the eyes. What's his name? The Pale Man from... um, Pan's Labyrinth. Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah, yeah. I know who you're talking about. So I don't know if that one's actually going to get made. It feels like the Robert Eggers one actually has like more of a chance, but they're both like pretty close to being in production. Why? Are we approaching some kind of anniversary for Nosferatu or something? Or it's just... It's hard to say. I think it might just be because we're in like kind of an atmospheric horror boom right now. And the original Nosferatu does have like a ton of like genuine spooky atmosphere that I think people are kind of fascinated with right now. So it's probably easier to get pretty much any horror movie greenlit right now just because like things like It or Happy Death Day and Annabelle Creation. But then this seems to be going in the... The period, it seems like those movies were bringing us out of. Right. You know what I mean? Like, that really atmospheric, like, slow burn kind of horror film. Yeah. Art, artsy, kind of expressionist, whatever. Yeah, and there's a ton of those getting made right now. They're, they're usually pretty small productions. And I, I believe probably the Eggers one, at least, will will have more money than most of those do. Because The Witch was kind of like a critical success, at least. But yeah, it's just interesting that Nosferatu is having like a moment right now. <laughs> so we were kind of thinking about just going back and looking at the different iterations of it that have already existed. Mm-hmm. The first one, Nosferatu, A Symphony of Horrors, is a German expressionist horror film from 1922. It's a silent movie directed by F.W. Murnau, and it is basically a copyright-infringing ripoff of Dracula. From what I understand about the case, like, didn't they burn, like, all the copies of it that were made in Europe? And only when it got brought over to the United States was it able to be, like, mass released. Right. Well, basically, if they thought they could get away with it by changing the names of the characters and some slight details about the characters. But that was basically a misunderstanding of copyright law because it was kind of like an early Mm -hmm. thing for that for film. Um, And yeah, like a judge ordered that all copies be destroyed. And in America, the copies that did slip through that banishment, they were slowly popular. Like, they kind of gradually became, like, a popular... Took years and years for it to kind of catch on. But it did make a ton of money in America and actually saved the Dracula brand. The Bram Stoker family was pissed that this work was ripped off without them getting paid. But by Nosferatu gaining popularity in America... You saw all these other reiterations of... of, Dracula, yeah. And I kind of like the subtle changes... That it makes to the like Dracula mythology or whatever. Just little things like with the sunlight, he can get totally like eviscerated by the sun. Where I think in the original, if I'm not mistaken, like he can go out in the sun. Just not for very long. Right. It like weakens him, but it doesn't destroy him. And like Nosferatu doesn't pass on this like vampire thing to the people he bites. He just murders him. Right. Pretty much. So it's like... Little subtle changes they made to try to get away from the original Dracula that watching Nosferatu and that original Dracula, Nosferatu for me is like way more impressive. I I have like a great admiration for Nosferatu's like atmosphere and just the look of Max Schreck as... He's terrifying. Yeah, he's like a humanoid rat. You look at pictures of him, just like normal pictures, and he still looks terrifying. Right. He still looks like a vampire. 
I, I do think both films have their charms in that way, though. Like, I have some things I like about the Bela Lugosi version of the story in the same way I like the atmosphere of, of this one. But I also think that both films have huge story problems. Once you get used to the look, and especially with the, the German expressionist touches of this, like the tinted cells. So, like, it's blue exteriors and these, like, yellow interiors mm-hmm. uh, and these really intense shadows that his uh, silhouette casts on the wall and, like, just the look of his, like, nails and stuff, like, crawling across the floor. That stuff's really striking. But once you get used to it, the story itself just kind of drags, even in these, like, sort of short-form versions of it. With Nosferatu, I found myself, like, when Max Schreck was actually on camera, it's pretty exciting. Yeah. But once it goes to the other characters and kind of going through the mechanics of the plot... It's a little boring, to be honest. Yeah, but, I totally agree with that. But his, like, appearance, I mean, it's iconic. Like, the shots of him just staring into the camera or coming up, like, out of the coffin and stuff. Like, really eerie and creepy. I wouldn't call it scary in, like, a traditional sense because it is more atmospherics. But it does, it still works on that level of just atmospheric creepiness. Like, and kind of, like, surreal. It's like an unreal sets. Like, everything just feels, like, artificial in this kind of interesting way. Even though there are a lot of more exteriors in this film than I'm used to seeing in silent pictures. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a lot of, like, outside shots. I started to notice while I was watching it, I watched a lot of silent horrors a couple summers ago, and there were mostly contained indoors in these, like, giant, like, studio lot sets. Like, one of the things I liked about the genre was that the sets kind of had no ceiling, you know? Like, everything just felt really tall and, like, mm-hmm. kind of dwarfed the the actors. Um, and here you do get a lot of exteriors, but when they are inside, everything does feel surreal and like kind of dollhousey and just like unnerving. Yeah, and speaking of the silent aspect, um, I was thinking as I was watching it, I wonder how it'd be with a different score because the music it was fine. It felt a little dated to me, and that was the thing with the version of Dracula you had me watch with the Philip Glass score. It's like that added so much to that general sense of uneasiness or whatever. I wonder if like a modern composer were to redo the score for Nosferatu, how much that would like elevate it. One of the better film screenings I ever went to was they do like an outside on on like an inflatable screen series down here. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they did one at the U.S. Mint that was Metropolis with a live score interpreted by three different musicians during the three different acts. Oh, wow. Someone did like act one, someone did act two, act three. Uh, and it was just so much more engaged with the imagery that you see on screen. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the versions of Nosferatu that are out there, the music is just sort of like separately on the track. Like it's not really that affected by the image that much. Like it's very like a, there's just like a disconnect there. Just imagine if, for example, like a Trent Reznor mm-hmm. or a Johnny Greenwood. Or like or, a black metal score. Or, or black metal, like any, something a little more interesting. I think that would have like... Uh, help me engage even more with it. Well, I don't know how much of the story we actually have to like cover here, just because it is like such a familiar tale, the Dracula story. But ba- mm. basically, a German real estate broker uh, goes over to Transylvania to visit Count Orlock, because they had to change the name from Dracula to Orlock, and helps him sell his estate, or something like that. So kind of like vague business dealings. Uh, mm-hmm. And in the process, Dracula sees a portrait of his wife, and becomes obsessed with, like, the length and sumptuousness of her neck. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 
kills this guy and decides to go home to kill his wife as well. Yeah, and he gets on this ship killing all the crew members. One aspect I thought was interesting in the Nosferatu was kind of the like Black Plague or the plague aspect to it, where it seemed like Nosferatu in the film represented more of just like an overall fear and like horror, whereas in the Dracula, the Bela Lugosi movie, it's more your typical, he's kind of like suave, and it's more about like the romanticism. The original Nosferatu doesn't really have that. It's more bleak. The and- sexuality has kind of been zapped out of it. Like obviously he has like a sexual hunger for Hutter's wife, mm-hmm. and that's part of his like hunger to, to drain her blood. But yeah, like you said, it's more wrapped up in like plagues and so much like rats imagery. And he looks like a rat. Like he's not an attractive man. You look at him and you're already horrified. Like there's no way he can like kind of trick you into thinking he's a rich royal. I guess because it's trying to get away from that mythology because of the copyright stuff. It takes on this new form where it's not the standard vampire that we've seen ever since. It's this more generalized horror, which I thought was interesting. And I do think if they bring that aspect back in the remakes, it Mm -hmm. could be really good. And something I I think is worth noting, and we'll get way more into this later, is that there are parts of his performance that come across as goofy. There's a scene in particular where, you know, on the ship, he brings his rats with him in his coffins. uh, And part of the mythology of that is he has to sleep in his native soil so he has like coffins filled of dirt from his home he's just carrying them around yeah there's this goofy image of him running outside with his coffin under his arm and it looks like an old screwball like marx brothers bit or something like he's just like running back and forth Mm -hmm. uh and he makes kind of the goofy rat faces aren't always scary like there's like a funniness to his performance that I don't think it's like blasphemous to bring that out, which we'll get into later on. That is something I wanted to bring up for a movie we're going to talk about later. Well, we've mostly touched on this already, but uh, Dracula from 1931 was made because Nosferatu became so popular. And this is where the Bram Stoker fortune found its like mm-hmm. stake in the ground. This is a universal horror film directed by Todd Browning, who later went on to make Freaks. You rewatched that recently. Yeah, I did. It's a pretty messed up movie. I've seen it within the past couple years. I enjoyed Freaks more when I had less, like, bleeding heart empathy. (laughs) When I was, like, a colder, like, oh, I can watch any exploitation and not feel it. Uh, But I guess as I got older, it just feels like I had the exact same reaction. I was like, oh, man, I kind of, like, feel awful for these people. Yeah. Whereas when I watched it when I was younger, it was just... Kind of like, oh, look at the freaks, which is like so messed up. But. Well, freaks is weird too because it's like the first half is this like hangout comedy where you're like gaining empathy for all these characters, mm-hmm. and then the second half is when the horror kicks in and they get their revenge on the person who's wronged them. And it's like, wait, I thought that you were trying to tell me these people were like humans just like anybody else, and now you're turning them into monsters. monsters it right. doesn't work. And that movie, its major fault is that it sort of falls in line with. The Universal Monsters brand, even though it was for a different studio, uh, he was basically applying his like empathetic circus hangout comedy into a Universal Monsters mold. And he helped establish what that mold was in Dracula. Um, this is credited as being the first talking supernatural thriller. I don't know how much. Did you get the sense, though? This is something that kept coming to me as I was watching it. It still seemed like in the mold of a silent picture mm-hmm. in some ways. One thing they do constantly is kind of like just keep the camera on one character, like on Dracula and like maybe slowly zoom in or something. 
but it kind of felt like the same techniques you would see in a silent film. Like it didn't really seem to take advantage of the fact that it was a talking. And that's just growing pains. Like that's just you learning how to make a new format of film, you know, like it's pretty early on in that the talkies Mm -hmm. and we already kind of talked about this, but the first, the first time I watched the movie, I saw it on DVD and like their 75th anniversary restoration with the Philip Glass score. And it was so beautiful to me. Like I loved this movie so much. And then I watched it again and the automatic default of the film is to play completely silent without any score. Which is unbearable. I couldn't get through it. It was horrible. And it's not like the movie was intended to be watched without a score. The prints were shipped off with these like records that you played simultaneously so that it had a built-in soundtrack to it. But no one kept the records. Like The film prints barely survived. There's no record of what they even should sound like. No one knows what the original score should be. So in 1998, they commissioned Phil Glass to rescore the film. And I think that I might just be more of a fan of the music than the film itself. But I think it plays like a gorgeous art film when you're listening to it with that symphony. Yeah, I agree 100% because I watched the Philip Glass version. And then I tried to go back and just watch it without the score, like you were saying. And... It makes it so, such a, like, drag. Mm -hmm. There's no, like, real tension at all, but that glass score, it's so, like, shimmering, it's bright, but it's really atmospheric, too. It's loud in the mix, too. And it's got kind of like a math, I don't want to say, like, math rock, but, like, whatever that syncopated, like, repetition, Mm -hmm. uh, where things move in movements instead of, like, in notes. I guess kind of like a Hans... Zimmer, mm-hmm. you know, like he does that too, like just taking arpeggios or whatever and just building on top of each other. It's not like it's overpowering what Browning did in the first place, but it is enhancing it in a way. It's kind of like elevating it because the imagery is powerful at times. Like we were saying earlier, Dracula is no longer this rat like fiend, he is this sort of like sexier, suave, sophisticated. Uh, The movie is really into the hypnotizing aspect of Stoker's source material. So you get these like close-up shots of Bela Lugosi's eyes as they glow and uh, sort of bring these women into his harem of vampire women that he has like roaming around his castle. Yeah, he's got a few vampire wives hanging out in the basement. And I think the gorgeous like set design and costuming for him and his like vampire harem or really gorgeous stuff like it's similar to Nosferatu and what I appreciated about it most was the technical aspects like you said the sets are beautiful and like some of the shots of inside the castle at certain points are like really creepy and unsettling but as a as far as like the plot and the story and how engaged you are as it goes along it definitely doesn't keep your attention throughout the whole thing there's parts of it that are kind of tough to get through i guess whenever bell lugosi isn't on camera a lot of times and if that experience of watching those two movies back to back twice because i watched them both twice has taught me anything it's that maybe i don't respect stoker that much i've never read his books but just the story of this and i've recently rewatched the ken russell the layer of the white worm Mm-hmm. And that one has, like, a similar problem. Like, the story is just kind of, like, batshit and empty. And well, just kind of, like, loosely strung together. But Russell finds enough exciting details in the material to make something, like, elevated out of it. It just gets a little ridiculous, just kind of how dumb these characters are. You come to this town, everyone's telling you, hey, this guy's a vampire. Don't go to the castle. And then you go to a castle and you see all this weird shit. 
and he's still it takes him so long to figure out that he's a vampire and it's like come on don't play stupid like that I don't know that was a big problem I had it could be definitely streamlined a lot more than it is and there could just be more vampire mayhem. That like body count style of horror movie wouldn't become popular until way later, so it's kind of unfair to expect it here. But without him sort of running around killing people, there's really not a lot to fill in the space. Right, like what's the conflict here? We know from the get-go he's a vampire, and so we basically have to play dumb for an hour <laughs> while these characters sort of figure it out. That doesn't make for a very engaging story. I will say that I do think Dracula does find more room for action than Nosferatu does, though, because he turns into a bat pretty often, and it is kind of what people make fun of now, that like rubber bat flapping. It's not that great of an effect. And he'll like visit Renfield's wife's window a lot mm-hmm. in her like sex dreams, and he actually does attack one woman outside in the park. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think maybe his harem might attack like a child or something at some point. Uh, but there is more of those like sort of action-oriented horror scenes here than even Nosferatu has. But there is so much dead space outside of those moments that it's hard to like even recall what they were. I think there also was a gag at the front of the movie, if I'm not mistaken, where someone almost says Nosferatu in the carriage and is stopped short of like saying that word. So they no, were kind of like funny. poking fun at Murnau's movie. But I, th- I think the movie does hold up well in some respects, just as far as like visual design. It's got enough to justify watching it. Uh, maybe not as much as like the Frankenstein movies, but... And I, I appreciate it. There's some little clever one-liners in there about, you know, I, I don't drink wine. Like there, he does these long pauses. Mm-hmm. And I, I do like Lugosi's portrayal. It, it's pretty fun to watch. It's a role he was asked to play for the rest of his career, more or less, in different iterations. Uh, Even when he was playing, like, a mad scientist or the wolfman or whatever, he was always kind of doing a version of Dracula. And he's really good at it. He is really good at it. And that's the Dracula, like, mold that pretty much anyone that's done that character since is playing around with on some level. Yeah. And it's kind of easy to see why this movie was remade so many times. Like, for people who may have grown up with it and seen it. Like, I could see how it would capture, like, a child's imagination. Coppola did a version of it. Mm. There was a 70s version that's kind of sexed up with Frank Langella. Guy Madden did a ballet version. Pages from a Virgin's Diary. I've never seen that. Uh, we did a ballet horror episode of the podcast last December. We watched it and it was very interesting. And then you have the Werner Herzog version. Well, yeah, and that Herzog movie um, from 1979, Nosferatu, The Vampire, is a remake specifically of the Murnau movie and not Dracula. Yeah, and it's a pretty spot on. I don't don't know if it's like shot for shot, but it's pretty close. It's scene for scene, Scene for scene, yeah. But I kind of think it does the same thing as uh, Peter Jackson's King Kong adaptation. It takes like the exact structure of the original Nosferatu and just stretches it out. You spend more time like living in these moments. Uh, maybe kind of like what I was saying, people growing up with the original and like it's sparking imagination. You know, like when you watch a movie as a kid, it always feels longer. It kind of feels like Herzog had that problem where he was like, oh, I remember the scene going on long and we were like diving into the atmosphere. And the movie just kind of has this like languid sense of pacing that I feel like a lot of 70s art films have, like where they're not really in a rush to get anywhere. And it kind of killed it for me. I agree. I'm a big Herzog fan in this I would not put in his like top tier of movies, but I don't know. It's I, got, I appreciate it. It's got aspects that work really well. It opens with 
this cave full of like mummified bodies that look like carved dolls and then immediately goes to this like bat flapping its wings in slow motion and this is all shot in this like grainy almost like video quality and later there's a, a nightmare with a boy playing a violin and a dinner party that's just swarmed with rats so you have all these aristocrats outside eating this like fancy meal meanwhile the plague of rats behind them is just covering mm-hmm. the rest of the screen and it kind of reminded me of when we talked about Gus Van Sant's Psycho remake how the movie was so much more interesting when it was like straying from the original script and like adding all these like surreal dream images this one i had the exact same experience it's like when they're remaking nosferatu in a one-to-one transfer i was less interested in it but when he brought in these like weird surrealist touches i was so much more engaged yeah i I would agree with that which might just be a symptom of watching like four versions of the same movie in a row like <laughs> maybe i, I just kind of well and it's still the ultimately the same story yeah I mean, so it's gonna get kind of tired after the fourth time he did shoot the movie twice uh which also todd browning did as well or maybe maybe todd browning didn't do this but the universal version of dracula was shot in english and then in Spanish with the same crew so that they could sell it in a different market. Apparently, the the Spanish version of Dracula is supposed to be like an improvement on what Browning's film ended up delivering. Oh, wow. And Herzog did the same thing. He shot it in English and in German. I ended up watching the English version of both films. I don't know if there's as much difference in the the German version for Herzog, but I can't imagine him messing with the DNA as much. Well, and one other thing... I wanted to touch on with that Herzog Nosferatu, the actor Klaus Kinski, whatever. He's phenomenal. He really does a very good job of like bringing that same that same vibe to that character. He looks less like a rat and more like a piranha. <laughs> Something about the makeup or like the shape yeah. of his head, but he is like legitimately creepy the way He's that Max really Schreck cre- was. Yeah, really unsettling. And uh, Isabella and Johnny from Possession is pretty great as like the main victim. She does a good job of like playing against him, just looking really distraught by like the supernatural terror of the situation. Uh, but yeah, the casting's fantastic. Uh, the only thing I didn't like as far as that goes was Renfield is sort of like Dracula's or Orlock's enthusiastic like servant and he is the most shrill annoying unfunny (laughs) comedic character in this movie that's something i forgot to mention with the uh bell lugosi one is i actually really liked um that actor's renfield yeah he was field in that one like he was one of my favorite characters and he's just so enthusiastic he's like dracula's coming (laughs) right my Uh, master in this one the renfield and herzog's version he giggles incessantly and that's supposed to be you knowing that he's crazy kind of like uh pages of madness when we watched that like mm-hmm. kind of like over over performative insanity and the sound of him giggling in this like pierces me like i was becoming violently annoyed watching him try to make me laugh i guess yes yeah, a little overdone and if we want to like go further into like how i wish Herzog had sort of messed with the original formula more and been a little more blasphemous to the material. That's when we get to the 2000 comedy Shadow of the Vampire. It's interesting you call it a comedy. It has comedic elements, I've gotten which into, is why I like it, but I don't know if I'd go so far as to call it a comedy. I've got arguments it about laugh. this. I think it's very funny. I think it's intentionally funny throughout. It does what I think most people want to see from a horror comedy. And what I hear people complain about a lot is that, oh, it was funny, but it wasn't scary, or it was scary, but the jokes weren't very funny. People always say, like, a horror comedy has to do both. And I feel like Shadow of the Vampire 
is both legitimately creepy in recreating the original sets from Nosferatu and also like over the top amusing as well. I think a lot of that has to do with Willem Dafoe and John Malkovich who both had this ability to like to the scenery and kind of overact mm-hmm. a little bit and they the scripts really good for this too like a lot of the lines are really like well written and you can tell they're having a really good time and just pushing their performance to this kind of ridiculous level and I think that kind of adds to the zaniness of it because it is sort of zany concept like you actually get a real vampire to play a vampire in your movie and I think that's where most of the comedy comes from is like it's supposed to be kind of a joke on the idea of method acting. So this is a early 2000s film produced by Nick Cage, oddly. It's set during the production of the original Nosferatu. Uh, you have John Malkovich playing F.W. Murnau and Willem Dafoe playing Count Orlock and Max Schreck mm-hmm. off camera. And the two of them are kind of similar energy in general like they could have swapped roles easily and done just as well in this film i'm pretty sure and they both kind of play these like oversexed goofballs in this like they're both very horny and very lustful and that's where a lot of the humor is in that and in their like kind of violent passion for either directing a movie or wanting to drink people's blood their characters definitely have a lot of parallel aspects to it and this is like a obviously like a not historically accurate retelling of, of the production of Nosferatu. There's a little bit of humor about them having to use the name Orlock and remind themselves not to say Dracula and that kind of thing. But mostly it's this comedy about Murnau bringing in this method actor who's supposed to come in. This is Max Shrek. And he's supposed to be like in character all the time. And people are supposed to interact with him as if he is a real vampire. And gradually as the film goes on you start to realize he is a real vampire and he starts murdering the entire crew and Murnau's struggle his like main conflict is trying to complete this film he just wants to finish the movie even though everyone around him is being killed by his star it's like oh I guess I gotta hire a new cinematographer um you don't think the movie's a comedy outright you think that like it's just like a horror with like some humorous elements yeah I think it's tough to put into one genre which is why I really liked it because there's parts of it that are legitimately scary too a lot of the sets have this like subterranean feel to like very uh, shadowy and like murky and Willem Dafoe as Nosferatu is like terrifying but also like you're saying really funny too like there's a part where he just like eats a bat that flies <laughs> like and it's hilarious or like and so there's elements of it that are comedic but also sort of a drama and also sort of a horror and kind of like you were saying it all works is why i think it's such a great movie it hits all those points and like does it well yeah and it's fully committed to both aspects i think it'll make willem dafoe scary just in that sort of max shrek kind of way where the makeup's like just kind of horrifying in general but then in the next shot he'll be sniffing around like a rat because he is like a real-life humanoid rat vampire. Mm-hmm. So he'll be kind of like sniffing around and squinching his face in these like little rodent maneuvers. And it kind of like sucks the like horror out of that moment, but then still is able to deliver it as soon as he becomes violent again. Like right. he can make a joke about really wanting to see Eddie Azard's wife's tits. And then in the next moment be like chomping on the sound guy's neck. And it's easy to switch back and forth from laughing to like actually being creeped out by him. The screenwriter, you know, obviously is watching Nosferatu, but I got the sense that he kind of had a similar perspective in the sense that, like, he kind of saw the humor 
And that Nosferatu character, like you were talking about with the carrying the coffin and just some of the faces he makes, it is funny. And he's like taking that and applying it to this, like this story. I was kind of curious why they didn't recreate the coffin carrying here. Like, I don't know if that would be considered like too much. Like if that would have pushed it into too goofy of territory, but it felt like the most Shadow of the Vampire moment of the original one. Yeah, yeah, that's sure. yeah. It's not like he's bringing out a goofy spirit that wasn't there. He's just kind of accentuating it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the movie's form is kind of brilliant. It's it's following the plot of Nosferatu as if they were shooting the film in sequence, which kind of like builds tension in like a classic horror movie kind of way. But at the same time, anytime Max Schreck kills someone on the set and production comes to a halt, the movie also kind of has to come to a halt. And you're basically like in this hangout film where you're just kind of lounging on the sets of Nosferatu, which is kind of a pleasure in itself. And I really like that structure. I li- Yeah, and as far as the structure too, I think the beginning of the movie is pretty genius because this director is like not revealing anything to the crew, which a lot of auteurs, I'm sure, will do that, like keep the production sort of like out of the loop. And so you have all these actors asking, like, what kind of movie are we making here? And everyone seems to be kind of mystified as to what's actually going on. And then it will slowly drop in, like, information about Max Shrek. And then when you finally have that reveal, it's like any other monster movie. It's like you've built this anticipation about the monster, and then you finally see him. And it's this, like, horrifying moment, like when he comes out of the shadows for the first time. But it builds suspense really effectively throughout and then the leading to this like climax death scene which i think is great too like it's it's, uh feverish like there's like a feral energy to that moment mm -hmm. uh, where everything's kind of loopy and basically murnau has completely lost his mind uh in his commitment to finishing this movie and it is really unnerving in a genuine kind of way to the point where i was even kind of laughing at the climax of the movie not because it was being goofy or over the top but just the audacity of following through on the concept like tickled me in a weird way. It was like, oh my god, they're going there. This is really absurd. At its core, it's a lot about just like an artist really pushing themselves to get their like vision, you know, fulfilled, whatever. And at the very end, he's finally made his movie, but there's a bunch of dead people <laughs> around him. Cost. So it's like, at what cost? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I thought that was great, like, taking that concept to its logical... I think the movie's, like, visual look plays well into both ends of its, like, goofy-scary divide. Like, the sets and the black-and-white footage have a legit German expressionism kind of feel to them. And some of the movie at the same time is shot in this, like, comic book angle, like... Dark Man or Bat- Tim Burton's Batman. Mm-hmm. Kind of like these drastic Dutch angles and this kind of like goofy uh, eccentricness to it. Especially in the scenes where Murnau is visiting these like opium dens and these like sex clubs in Berlin. There's like kind of a goofy childlike mm-hmm. quality to it. That I think smashes against the uh, German expressionism and in a way that sort of defines like the content as well. And I think it's just like a really well made film that honestly has like more middling reviews and kind of like a muted reception than what I would have expected. Yeah, I, I kind of think it's really underappreciated. Like, it, this really is a great film. And to what you were saying, too, there's a shot towards the end that I really liked where it starts in that black and white old style and then it actually subtly changes to color as the shot's going on. I was like, how the hell did they do that? Like, that's <laughs> awesome. It's just the writing, the acting, the look of it, the whole concept taken to 
it's logical conclusion. I I really love this movie. It was probably my favorite one we watched. I agree. And actually, we talked about yeah. Like there's aspects of the original Nosferatu and the original Dracula that I really was swept away by, but there were also long stretches of both of those films where I was kind of feeling like the space was dead and just not being used properly. Whereas the entirety of Shadow of the Vampire, I was kind of like anticipating what was coming next and kind of had no idea. And I think the movie does a good job of recreating the atmosphere of those two originals as well. Even kind of making fun of them sometimes. Like Eddie Azard plays the uh, Hutter character and his scenes in the movie play up the like silent film vamping that you have to do to like portray emotion in this like kind of over the top vaudeville way. Uh, And it's funny, but without betraying the truth, like... He's, he's like barely playing it up and it, it feels true to the originals. And yeah, I think that's hard to pull off. Yeah, it's, he does it's, that. it's such a genuine, respectful movie that is still blasphemous to the details of reality. And I really appreciate how wild it gets with those details. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm glad that we're more or less on the same page. I, I, I think maybe I was more into the Bela Lugosi movie than you were, but that's about it. Yeah, I, I would just say to anyone that hasn't seen Shadow of the Vampire, like, really, you gotta check this movie out. Yeah, this is the one I would recommend the most as well. Well, we'll be back a lot sooner with the next episode than we usually are. Hopefully within a week from when you hear this, we'll have one more Halloween episode coming to you. And before we head out, I just want to say thank you to an iTunes reviewer by the name of Mr. Hot Dog Boy. Uh, <laughs> Love that name. I don't know who that is, but they were very nice to us in a review that... Actually, like, touched every point of what we try to do with the podcast. So it just felt very good to get feedback about the things that we're doing right here. I know that we're not always doing everything right, but it was just nice to hear that someone kind of gets the vibe we're going for. Just kind words. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, we'll come back to you that next episode soon. Bye. Bye.